with us last week, we discussed a few outrageous claims that Jesus made to the Jewish leaders. I mentioned last week uh, that claims are typically statements that don't require proof. But Jesus is going to go one step further in our text today and provide some evidence of what he calls, he would say, these are witnesses to these outrageous claims. And so if you weren't here with us last week, I'm going to give you a brief recap. The three outrageous claims that Jesus made last week in the text was relationship, revelation, and resurrection. The three R's, relationship, revelation, resurrection, his relationship with the Father. He claimed to have relationship with the Father. He claimed to have a, a sense of he gets to see everything that the Father does, and he is basically mimicking all that the Father does. And so he has this special relationship with the Father. There's going to be special works that he sees from the Father that is going to be revelation to us that we're going to come to know God by these mighty works that he's going to do. And so he's going to do mighty works that are going to cause us to marvel. They're going to cause us to be in awe. And then lastly, he says there's going to be a resurrection, that there's going to be resurrection from death to life, from a dead spiritual life to an alive spiritual life. And then also he said, there's going to be a time where all will rise. All will be, will come from the tomb and will appear before Jesus, some given life and some given judgment. And so these are the three outrageous claims. You can imagine the Jewish leaders hearing these. We talked about uh, hearing these outrageous claims can cause some of us to take a step back, to posture ourselves in a way where we're going, what, what gives you the right to make these claims? And the three responses that Jesus gave us last week is, if you hear these outrageous claims, I, I want you to hear them, I want you to believe in them, and I want you to honor me, the person who is able to make these claims. And so at the, at the end of this passage today, we're, we're going to be faced with the same response. Will we respond to Jesus? And I, I know that I'm speaking to possibly a crowd that is mostly churched, knowing that there are people here who are curious about Jesus and walking in. We're thankful you're here. And, and I would tell you the call is no different. No matter who you are or where you're coming from or whatever your background, will you come to Jesus? And I'm telling you that there's probably the same barrier that exists for people who are walking in who are curious about Jesus is the same barrier that keeps all of us from coming to Jesus on an everyday basis. What is it? That's where we're going to get, that's where we're going to go. Jesus is going to engage unbelief in this passage. That's what he's engaging. The reason he uses harsh words, the reason he uses harsh language, even though it was read with like the sweetest words from Michelle, okay, and, and you hear it's like, you don't abide in the word and you don't listen to the truth and you search the scripture. It's like, these are fighting words. Jesus is confronting them, but he confronts them with a passion and a heart for them to be saved. And Jesus engages unbelief in two ways. And these are the two ways that you're going to see Jesus engage unbelief. He engages the mind. And so Jesus doesn't say, hey, check your mind at the door and, and come and follow me. In, in fact, we, we read in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, it says, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It requires the whole being. And, and so it, it does require the mind. It does require, we, we appreciate and we're thankful 
for the intellectual approach that many people write from and give us evidence into the validity of Jesus. We know uh, because of the validity of the Bible, the archaeological evidence, the eyewitness testimonies, the non-Christian resources that even exist, people who wouldn't claim to follow Jesus but have written accounts of his life, there is a ton of historical evidence for the historicity of Jesus apart from the Bible. And we're thankful for the intellectual evidence and the, the sense that we don't have to check our mind at the door. It's the Bible doesn't disagree with science. Now, science needs to come and it is, is basically in submission to the word of God. And so are we, are we submitting this to the word of God? The word of God is true. And so we see, we don't have to check our mind. And so Jesus is going to engage them intellectually. He, he sees that. That's his first approach. And for some of us, maybe that is where we come from. Like we, we just don't have, I, I use this term and not in a derogatory term, but in a derogatory way, but we're, we're ignorant of the, the truth and validity of Jesus. We just haven't considered the claims. We just haven't been approached. I meet a lot of people who don't know the good news of the gospel. I meet a lot of people who I say, hey, don't you know, like, this is what Jesus, and they're like, no, I didn't know that. Well, that's awesome. Like, that's one way that we can engage unbelief is to engage it through the mind. And Jesus is going to do that. He's going to pre present eyewitness, like, these are the, the witnesses, these are the testimonies that I'm putting forward, but he's going to go a step further. Because it's not just the mind, he's going to engage unbelief through the heart. It's not just intellectual, it's emotional. And I would tell you that for most of us, it's not intellectual evidence that we need. We, we need some emotional engagement. And that's where Jesus goes in this text. He goes to the heart. His second approach is through the heart. And so what Jesus is doing is he's helping them diagnose the heart. Church, hear me. We need people to help us diagnose our hearts. We need to consider some of the tough claims that Jesus makes in this passage and, and, and ask, is that true of me? We, we make a huge push here for community groups, and it's not because like hey, we, we want to get you into these you know, smaller groups and, and that's a strategic way to help grow our church. We, we believe in community groups because we believe that this room alone is insufficient to, to create change and growth and properly diagnose in the heart. We need people to apply it. And so that's what's happening in community groups. If that's not what's happening in your community group, come talk to me. I help coach our community groups. But I can tell you, we want to help properly diagnose the heart. Does that happen in the context of 20 people in a room? No, it's introducing these concepts of how do we apply and relationships are birthed out of that. And, and we're getting to one another, each other to help diagnose. I can tell you, I met with a couple this past week and we sat down. You know what we're seeking to do together? We're seeking to be faithful to who Jesus is. And we're going, hey, man, is this true of me? Is this true of you? How do you see this in my life? How do I see this in your life? And we're wrestling that out together. And I love that 
Because here I am 20 years after professing faith in Jesus and I'm still growing. And I'm still seeking to be faithful to Jesus. I'm still seeking to, to want to have God properly diagnose my heart and pull out those areas of unbelief. And we need others to do that. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. One another does not happen in this room. You have, like, this is only half of the Christian life. To be faithful to the one another's of scripture, we have to be engaged. We have to be opening our lives to the, the people around us. And we need to be saying like, hey, help diagnose my heart. Help show these areas. And because of the gospel, we can do that. That's a gift. So the key question we're addressing out of this text, what is keeping you from coming to Jesus? Jesus is going to do that. Jesus is going to show us that. What is keeping you from believing and trusting in Jesus. And here's what I would say. These people are standing face to face with Jesus, and guess what? They're missing him. Could it be possible that we today, walking into Church of the Valley on October 16th, could be missing Jesus? Absolutely. For us to say that we can't, or it's impossible for us to miss Jesus this morning, is to be naive because they're standing face to face with Jesus. They've seen the miracle of the healing at the pool of Bethesda, and yet they stand in unbelief. What's keeping you from believing today? What's keeping you from taking the steps? So we're going to begin John chapter 5, verse 31. We'll come back to 530 at, at the end of the message. Uh, in John 531, it says, if I alone bear witness. So he's presenting witnesses. And he says, out of the gates, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. What Jesus is not saying is, is that my words are not enough. Jesus's words are sufficient. He isn't saying that his testimony isn't true. He just needs further witnesses to prove that it's true. Why? Well, because the law demands it. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, it says this, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so however true your testimony is, you can't testify about yourself, right? Like those typically don't stand in trial. You come, you're like, I'm going to be my own eyewitness. I saw myself. I was there at this moment, right? It's like, no, we, we need some outside witnesses. It's not that your testimony is not true. It just shows greater truth when you have other eyewitnesses, other people who can claim similar stories, similar experiences that can come alongside. So Jesus, knowing that these religious leaders hold to the law very tightly, he's playing their game. He's like, hey, I know in your law that it requires that we present some other witnesses. So I'm gonna bring some other witnesses. Jesus is on trial here. This is a courtroom setting. They're gonna consider the claims of Jesus. They're being called to consider these witnesses of Jesus. And 
we're going to make a verdict, right? Like we're going to make a verdict and it's not guilty or innocent. The verdict is belief or unbelief. Will we believe in Jesus or not? Jesus provides witnesses. So who are our witnesses? It starts in verse 32. The first witness is another. That's, that's all we get. Now, we read in this, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. Who is the another that is referenced here? Uh, out of first glance, I'll tell you, when I first read this text, and I just kind of start reading on, to me, it seems to kind of flow right into John the Baptist, who is going to be our next witness, and it seems that that would be an accurate statement to say John the Baptist. And, and this is the another that he's talking about. But there's some confidence that he has in this testimony. And I don't know that that confidence would come from solely John the Baptist. And so some commentators say John the Baptist. Some commentators say it's the Father, God the Father. And God the Father is going to be another one of our witnesses. Either way, whosever testimony this is moves him to a place of confidence. He, the testimony he bears about me is true. The confidence that it gives him is the ability to be able to stand in opposition with the Jewish leaders and be able to make these claims. He has enough confidence to go, this is who I know, like this, this is who I am. This is, I know my identity. I'm assured of my identity. I have this assurance. It's given him confidence. And so this has to come from someone greater, someone all-knowing, who more than the Father speaking over us would give us the confidence to stand strong. So my take is, I believe that the another that it references is the Father, because it's the Father who gives us the confidence. It's the Father who gives us the confidence to to stand in the face of opposition. And we're going to need this type of confidence. Let me ask you this morning, who does the Father say that you are? Who does the Father claim you to be? Do you have confidence in your God-given identity? Do you see yourself this morning as a loved son, as a loved daughter? And that's meant to change your posture. That's meant to give you a standing. That's meant to give you assurance. And so the first witness we have in this text is another. The second witness that he calls upon is John the Baptist, verse 33. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, okay? Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things to you so that you, might be, you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were re- willing to rejoice for a while in his light. And so he was a lamp. What does a lamp do? A lamp gives what? Light. All right. He gives light, right? And so... John the Baptist came as a light. He came as a forerunner. And it says that they were willing to rejoice for a little while, for a little while in his light. And it, it's basically, when, when we read this text, it's, it's seen in, in this text, his claim wasn't highly regarded. The idea that you were only willing to, to receive him for a little bit is more a sense of, of claiming a mockery of going, you didn't even take his claim seriously. 
When John the Baptist came on the scene and John the Baptist came as a forerunner to Jesus, pointing people to Jesus, we saw in the early chapters of John that John the Baptist came and he, people, they thought he was the prophet. They thought he was Elijah. They thought he was the Messiah. Are you the Christ? And John the Baptist was very clear. I am not the Christ. He pointed people to Jesus. He was just a forerunner, but he testified about Jesus. John the Baptist, the person whose claims you didn't really take seriously, he regarded me as the Messiah. He holds to the validity of these claims. He believes these claims to be true. Why is he point John the Baptist? Why is he pointing out John the Baptist in this text? It says, so that you may be saved. Saved. Again, as we said earlier, one of the reasons why Jesus is speaking, and Jesus is speaking in in a very confrontational way in this text. A lot of us, we, we wrestle with the idea of like, what does it mean to be nice? What does it mean to be loving and, and engaging though? What does it look like to engage evangelistically in our culture? And the question is, is do you desire, do you long as Jesus does, do you long for people to be saved? Yeah, amen. Let me tell you something. Church of the Valley exists for people to be saved. We exist, and, and we, we talked about this when we were at our Acts 29 retreat a few weeks ago. They talked about the importance of your origin story. Why does your church exist? And, and we don't stack, we're not stacking Church of the Valley against other churches and say, hey, we do this, and this other church doesn't do this. And, but we exist And this church started, this church began, people moved here, and I'm not talking just about me, I'm talking people packed up their life from all over the U.S. and brought their life here because they desired people to be saved. They desired to be like John the Baptist and come and point people to Jesus. And so we want to be engaged. We want to confront our culture. We want to be engaged in culture. We want to point out the cultural idols of our time. We want to because we long for people to know the good news of Jesus. We long for people to experience resurrection life. We, we want people to experience the good news of Jesus. And so if you ask, why does Church of the Valley exist? We exist for people to be saved. Now, do we also exist to disciple people to the depths and realities of who Jesus is? Absolutely. And I would tell you that the more you come in awareness of of who Jesus is and what he's doing, and as you grow, the more faithful you'll be to his mission and go out to see others come to saving faith in Jesus. But we exist so that others will be saved. And Jesus is intentional in going after the lost. And he, he puts John the Baptist and he says, hey, John the Baptist is a great, he has come testifying about the claims of who I am, John the Baptist. The next one, the third one, are the works of Jesus. Verse 36. He says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. And so he's like, hey, John the Baptist, you know that guy who wore weird, weird clothing, ate weird foods, came around, never liked, gained glory for himself, always pointed people to Jesus? I, I got one better. The works of Jesus. The miraculous works, the supernatural works. And he says, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now, 
again, we got to go back into context here. The people he's talking to just saw a man who was paralyzed for 38 years get up, take up his mat, and walk. And he's going, it's those works. So if you're here today, and it's okay, if you're like, you're questioning the supernatural. What, what is possible with God in 2022? Here's what I would tell you. I firmly believe that God is still at work in the way that he was at work in the New Testament. God is still healing. God is still doing miraculous works. There's no reason for us to believe. The Bible doesn't say that those works have ceased to exist. We still believe, and I still believe they are operating. They are working. We do see miraculous works. If we, if we can just go like, your own life is a testimony of the miraculous work of Jesus, the fact that your life can be transformed. But the same way in which a man was healed, we're seeing healing happening. I've, I've prayed and asked God for things. It's not my prayers. It's not my efforts. It's the faithfulness of God. But I've seen people healed in front of me. We want to see that. We want to believe that. For what purpose? God's glory. So that God would be made known. So that we would bear witness to the fact that his testimony is true. That the claims that he comes to make are true. And he says, I'm going to do those. And for us who live in a state maybe of unbelief of the supernatural works of Jesus, they are not facing unbelief in the supernatural works of Jesus. They are looking at a man who was paralyzed, and now he's walking. So they are face to face. So I believe we should hunger for this. We should ask for this. We should see evidence of the hands of Jesus in this, and it should move us to belief in Jesus. Um, fourth thing, fourth witness he calls upon, verse 37. We got the another, we got John the Baptist, we have the miraculous works he puts on display. Here he says, the father, verse 37, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Well, that's a good witness. The father but there's a problem with the father, and this is where the, the harshness comes in, and really the pointedness of Jesus, if I were to be more accurate. He says, his voice you have never heard. It's like you won't even receive the testimony of the father. He's not even, to you, he's not a reliable witness. Why? Because you've never heard his voice, his voice you've never seen his form, and you don't have the word of God abiding in you. These are fighting words. This is the confrontational nature of Jesus coming on display. He says, the Father, the Father testifies about me. Verse 39, the scriptures. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have turned life. Is searching the scriptures a bad thing? No, searching the scriptures. Should we search the scriptures? Yes, absolutely. And through the scriptures, do we find eternal life? We do, because it's in them that we meet Jesus. But it's the whole book testifies about Jesus. If, if you want to know this whole book, and, and if it's like, man, this is really clunky, you know, 66 books written over 1,600 years, written by some 40 different authors, what, what's this all about? It's about one hero. It's about one story. 
It's about the fallenness of mankind and all of our failed attempts to try to get to God and God sending Jesus as our hero to rescue us, redeem us, and bring us back to a new place where we get to live with him forever. That's the story. And so from the very first few pages, we see Jesus on display. We were made in the image of God. It's plural. Let us make man. We see Jesus out of the gates. We see Jesus described as that, that Eve is going to have an offspring. And through the offspring of Eve, that one day he would crush the serpent and that we would be given life. And, and we see page after page after page, they talk and they reference Jesus. But these religious leaders, they don't see Jesus. They search and search and search. They're diligent in their scriptures. As a, as a religious Jew, these people would have memorized the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible. I want to consider, how are you in the first five books of the Bible? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized completely by the age of 10. That was the standard for, for those who were going to be in, in the elite crew that ran with the Jews. They would memorize the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They searched the scriptures diligently. They have them memorized, but they miss Jesus. My question is, could we miss Jesus? Yeah, absolutely, right? This past week, I, uh, my kids were on fall break. And so uh, if you're asking, why, why this LA Dodgers hat? Well, uh, we decided while my kids were on fall break, I would take the boys to their first major league baseball game. And so we jumped in the car and drove eight hours and went to a baseball game, stayed the night, woke up the next morning, drove all the way back. And it was awesome. Now, my boys have uh, never experienced a major league baseball game. It was super fun because we went in the postseason. And side note, they, they lost last night, um, which is helpful in my sermon because we're going to get to a place. Our glory doesn't come from our winning team. And so if you're a football fan, you're waiting for like your emotional status is going to change this afternoon when you find out that you lost and you're like, oh man, it's good news that like our glory doesn't come from our winning team. All right. So we can, we can live another day. We can keep going. But my wife was super concerned for one reason. You're going to lose our kids. Okay. So you're going to go to the Dodgers. It's a sellout game. There's 53,000 people in attendance. And I'm like, look, you can trust me. All right? I'm responsible. I'm not going to lose our kids. I promise. And so the whole time I'm documenting, you know, you know here we are. You know, we're still together. We're at the game. We're ahead. We're at batting practice. Everything's good, right? And then we sat at the game. And every time, like when we went to the snack shack, I'm, I'm walking them in front of me. I'm keeping them in front of me. And then at the end of the game, everybody's leaving. And I'm going, hey, we'll just stay put. You know, I don't want to look irresponsible here. So let's just stay put. Let's wait till the stadium clears. Make sure we honor mom's request. And so we stayed put and we waited and waited and waited. And then the parking lot was full of cars. So I was like, let's just stay here. And we just stood there and we waited till the parking lot cleared out. And we got in the car. I was like, we're documenting, we're FaceTiming. Hey, we're still together. I didn't lose them. This is so good. And then we went back to the hotel and we got ice cream in the lobby. And we were like, we did it, guys. We did it. We walked to the elevator, hit the 20th floor, got to the 20th floor. And I stepped off and the elevator doors went. Pow. And I was like, guys. Oh, man. 
Really, right here, right at the end. I made it this far. I hadn't lost them. And here we are on the 20th floor, and I'm going, where are they going to go? You know, you got to have the key card to access it. I had both key cards, but they're on the elevator. The elevator door shut. I immediately pushed the door, hoping it would open right back up. It didn't. And so I immediately jumped on another elevator, rode it all the way down, looked across the lobby. They're not there. Rode it all the way back up, and I'm searching diligently, running across the hotel, frantic, thinking I was doing so well, only to lose it right here. And all of a sudden, I hear their voice, Dad. I was like, what are you guys doing? Where were you? They're like, well, we wrote it down, and we went and found a manager, and then we got back on, and we wrote it up. And, and I was like, next time, stay with him. Like, this was scary. It was frantic. I, I share all that. What does your searching look like? Because we typically search for things of value, right? I was frantically searching for my kiddos. I'm running around this hotel, you know, for 10 minutes, I'm going, there's nothing in the world that matters than finding these kiddos. And, and so I'm, I'm running, I'm, I'm, but it's like, there's some, some things that you lose that you, you don't really search the house for, right? I mean, you ever been at some place to give you change and you drop a penny? It's not like you get down on your hands and knees and you're running around trying to find that penny, right? And, and, but we think, we, we search for things of value, and we're to search the scriptures diligently. We're to search the scriptures, not for our devotional thought for the day, not for our DIY, your new life, not for our own self-interest or self-investment, not for our own information or head knowledge. We search the scriptures because in them we find Jesus. Jesus is behind all of scripture. It's Jesus. It's a relationship. It's a person. We're seeking a person. We're seeking Jesus. In Proverbs chapter two, verses one through five, it says, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice, if you seek it like silver and you search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. We're to search like hidden treasure. Jesus is all over this book. Jesus is, is to be found on every page. We open this book not as a religious exercise. We open this book not as a, a sense of filling our heads with more information. We open this book, hopefully, each and every day because it's in these words we find the person of Jesus. And we live in the relationship, in relationship with Jesus. We need Jesus. Had they truly approached the scriptures, had they truly searched the scriptures, if they truly read the scriptures, they would have discovered that it was him that it was pointing to. It was Jesus, but they missed Jesus. They missed him, the scriptures. The last witness that he puts on display is Moses. And we'll jump down and I'm gonna grab these few verses in between in closing. In verse 45, 47, it says, do you not think that I will accuse you to the father? There is one who accuses you, Moses. Now, Moses was like their best friend, right? Because 
we, we look back, it's, it's Moses' words in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses, they love the law. Jesus, Moses was the, the lawgiver. And so they're, they're like, we love Moses. Moses is our man. And he's like, it's actually Moses who accuses you. And they're like, whoa, we thought that was our buddy. For if you believed Moses, if you, if you really believe the words of Moses, if you truly search the words of Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The closing argument that he brings is Moses. And Moses' writings were prophetic in nature. They pointed to Jesus. They pointed to Jesus. In the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before Jesus, these prophetic words were written pointing people to Jesus. They all come true in Jesus. Moses said, a prophet would rise up and I will put my words in his mouth. That person is Jesus. Moses, who spoke of the offspring of Eve, who would one day crush the snake, that person is Jesus. But they don't see him. And, and that's where I kind of want to draw us in. That's the end of the intellectual approach of Jesus. The end of the intellectual approach, the end of Considering, here are these witnesses. I have presented these witnesses. They, they are giving, uh, they are claiming the validity of my claims. They've spoken, but you, you failed to see them. Why? Why don't they see him? Why do they, and it, it literally says they don't want to come to him. Why? And it's, this, it's wrapped up in this idea of the heart and this idea of glory. And that's where I want to spend the remainder of our time. Kind of, This is where I feel like the diagnosis of the heart begins in this text. Because I, I, I don't know that most of us, are, our sense of truly coming to Jesus is wrapped up in this idea of the intellectual. We need intellectual evidence. I believe most of it is our hearts. Our hearts don't allow us to come to Jesus. They're corrupt. And I want to show you the same uh, needs and, and desires that these religious leaders faced are the, are the same things that we're facing today. And I'll jump back up to verse 30, and then I want, you to show, I want to show you verse 44. Verse 30 says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Who does Jesus come for? For the Father. Jesus comes for the Father. He's about the Father's glory. Jesus comes, because he's like, I'm, I'm all for my dad. Like I'm doing what my dad does. I'm coming for the glory of my dad. Like I want to be faithful and obedient to him. This is my aim in life. This is my direction. This is my trajectory. I'm coming for him. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? And so he comes back to this because here we see Jesus. Jesus is seeking the glory of the Father. But what he's saying about these religious leaders is they're seeking glory from another. They're not out to seek glory from God. They get their praise. They get their uh, uh, like standing. They get their identity from one another. What people say about them. And so it's this idea of going, your heart will not allow you to come to me. Why? That's the question. Why will your heart not allow you? It says, how can you believe? He asks this question in verse 40. How can you believe? And the, the thing is, you can't. 
It's a rhetorical question, but it's going, how can you believe? You can't believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God. Do you not think, uh, let me jump back. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me, but if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. What's that talking about here? He's talking about, he's given us, there's an intellectual and an emotional problem. He's given us the intellectual evidence. This is where he's addressing the heart. And he's saying the root of your unbelief comes from a heart issue. The root of your unbelief is not receiving me because I come not in, in my own name. I come in the name of my father. So who is Jesus? Jesus is submissive to the Father. Jesus submits himself to the will of the Father. Jesus comes for the glory of the Father. And he says, you come for your own glory. And so you receive glory from another. And as long as you're all about your glory, you will never come to God. Because to come to God means to be all about his glory. And so it's keeping us. The root of their unbelief and the root of our unbelief is is we're all about our glory. I know I am. Every week when I get up here, are they going to like my sermon? Are they going to like this message? Is is there going to be like the pat on the back and like, hey, pastor, that was a good word. Thanks for challenging us. Thanks for the encouragement. Thanks. You know, there's so much in my life that that I go, and, and it's been revealed, and it's been revealed through people who love me and go, dude, you, you want a people, please. And that's in all of us. We all hunger for glory. And I love J.R. Vassar, who is a pastor in Texas. He, he wrote a book called Glory Hunger, and I love what he writes because in this book, Glory Hunger, he talks about we were actually made to hunger for glory, but it's not meant to be something that we reach out and try to gain for ourselves. It's something that's meant to be God-given. God gives us glory. God gives us praise. God says, you're my loved son. You're my loved daughter. You were loved. You're accepted. But what happened in the garden? Adam and Eve were tempted. For what purposes? They were tempted because they could be like God. The glory that they had was not enough. It was not sufficient. And so they wanted the glory from another. And so they trusted in the serpent and they took of the fruit. And you and I, it's just been a pattern, a cycle that we continue to live in. We live just like our parents, Adam and Eve. We reach out because we want to be our own God. We want to receive glory. And as long as we are totally seeking the glory, we will never come to the Father. Because what it means to come to the Father means to come like Jesus. So Jesus comes to redeem that from us. Jesus comes to redeem us from this place of praise. In many ways, we're, we're in the, this trial and we're looking for the court of opinion. What's going to be said about me? What are the words that my, my friends say? What are the, the praises? And that's what he says in this text. He's saying, if, if someone were to come in their own name, you would receive them. Why? Because that person isn't convicting. That person is just like them. All of us, at times, we wrestle with this sense of we come in our own name. We come for our own glory. We don't come for God. We don't come for God's glory. And so one commentator said, 
It arises from this that they would receive one who came in his own name. Such a one they would understand and appreciate. He came from their world and spoke of their world, but Jesus is not of this type. Jesus comes in someone else's name. So how can you believe? It's impossible with people whose habit is to receive glory from each other and who do not make a habit of seeking the glory of God. So it may be clear this morning intellectually. It may be clear the evidences are here. We see God's fingerprints and thumbprints all over. But the thing that's keeping you is not intellectual evidence. It's hard evidence. You need God to penetrate your hearts. We need God to show us our unbelief. We need God to show us areas that we're seeking glory from another and not seeking his glory. So how's your heart? J.R. Vassar says this, to be human is to love glory. To love glory. The human soul, Christian or atheist, thrives on recognition and praise. For many, it's what gets us up in the morning and carves our paths and keeps us up at night. It solicits our affections. It drives our decisions. It carves our paths in light. In short, we are hungry. We have an appetite for glory and we want the desire satisfied. But we don't have to live long to figure out that the recognition of praise of man is cheap. Not because it's necessarily disingenuous, but because it never satisfies. It's the well that keeps you coming back over and over and over again. We gladly receive any honor that comes our way, but it's not long before the stomach of glory growls for adulation once again. We want that flattery. We want the praise. We want people to speak well of us. Why shouldn't we be after glory? Well, because it never satisfies. It's in Jesus and the glory and what Jesus came to accomplish for us on the cross that truly gives us back and ends this vicious cycle of trying to seek glory, trying to be like God. So here's the question. Where are you? Where's your heart? Where are you in that cycle? Thinking back to Adam and Eve, the temptation to be like God, the lie of Satan. The lie of Satan is always to give you something you already have. You know that? The lie of Satan. Satan can't, there's nothing else that he can, that can be given to you that God hasn't already given you. So the lie of Satan is to give you, to get you to think that you don't have something, that you need something, that you're lacking something. And the one thing that is tempting for most of us is glory. We have a glory hunger. And Jesus comes to restore that. The glory that we are seeking is the glory that God comes to give. In the Heidelberg Catechism, it says, How are you righteous before God? Listen to this. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments and I've never kept any of them and I'm still inclined to all evil. Yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. 
He grants these to me as if I had never committed any sin and as if myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ had rendered for me if I only accept this gift with a believing heart. What Jesus stamps in the courtroom of opinion is Justin Bindle, fully loved, fully accepted through the work of Jesus. The praise you're looking for, the praise you're hungering for, Jesus accomplished. Jesus comes to acquire it for you. And just in case you think that we're going to be awed with like we come and we're put in a position of praise and glory, it says in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, when we come face to face with God, we're going to take whatever gifts and rewards that we've been offered and we're going to lay them at the feet of Jesus because we're going to see in that moment that he is truly the only one worthy of praise and honor and glory. But he shares that with us. What a beautiful picture. The thing that's keeping you and I is probably not our intellect, but it's a heart issue. We want to be God. But I'll close with this quote. God will make a way to renew his commendation over us, restore his image in us, and reclaim lost greatness for us. But our reaching for glory will not bring about this transformation. No, God will come to us and it'll be his work, not ours. It is reaching that robbed us of this glory in the first place. Grasping for glory is the one sure way to miss it. So receive the gift of Jesus this morning. That what Jesus accomplished for you on the cross is he ends this vicious cycle of grasping for glory and calls you son, daughter, loved, accepted, chosen. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we, we look at this confrontation in your voice and I pray that you would confront every heart in this room. Show us areas of unbelief in our life. Show us areas where we're seeking glory. Show us areas where we're seeking praise from others. Show us the areas of life where we have fear man. May the word that you speak over us be everything and be all we need. May we see the lies of this this world and the lies of the enemy that are out to give us something that you've already given us. So help us live in that. Help us wake up tomorrow, not with an attempt to prove ourselves or out to earn praise, but know that you have already given it to us. Lord, for those in the room this morning, we're still grasping for glory who haven't tasted it in Jesus. I pray this morning that our futile attempts at trying to gain, trying to push a stone uphill would, would just be seen as false and that you would move people to a place of belief. 
penetrate hearts this morning, penetrate souls this morning, and move people from a place of unbelief to belief. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.